validation is normal to want. Every human being loves validation and that's okay. That's fine. We're programmed to do that and validation is good. But the problem is we become kind of addicted to this idea of, wow, I'm really special because I got 200 likes or people really think my life, you know, that makes us feel great in the moment. But then it's just like this very empty thing. It's like, you know, doing a shopping spree. In the moment you come back, you have these nice clothes and then you're like, ugh, but that didn't make me feel better. And I think it's like a, it's, it's a distraction, you know, again, from what really, what really matters in life. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in. Danae here. And that voice you heard in the intro is Lena Derhali. Lena is an expert on narcissism. And today we're talking a little bit about social media and narcissism and the impact on our well-being. In our conversation today, Lena and I are discussing this idea of false narratives. Facebook and Instagram and other forms of social media give us the space and opportunity to create a false narrative of what we wish we had, of what we want to be true. And as a result, many of the things that we see online end up being some type of a distorted version of reality. And there's an impact on both the creator and the consumer. Many of us jumped onto social media years ago without much thought in what role it was going to play in our lives. And it turns out it's a slippery slope. And neither Lena nor I are advocates for getting rid of social media altogether. But something that we do have in common is this idea that we need to be more intentional in the way that we use it. And for many of us, myself included, that means pushing pause and taking a deeper look at the role that it has on our lives. In this conversation, we're also going to talk about cyberstalking and cyberbullying and the mental health impact of the generation that is coming of age with social media, or I should say has been coming of age with social media. Lena is the author of two books, including the recent book, The Facebook Narcissist. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want the links to get in touch with her and learn more about her work, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 316. Before we jump into that, a quick announcement. I have changed the Simple Families community over to a free model. So if you want to join in, there is no monthly cost to that. I'm going to be hosting live office hours, answering all your questions on Thursday evening. So if you want to join in on the community and be a part of those live office hours, which are also free, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash community. I look forward to getting to know you all there. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi, Lena. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yes, I am a licensed psychotherapist based in Washington, D.C., and I'm certified in something called Imago Relationship Therapy. So 
I do a lot of work with couples and families, and I'm very relationally oriented. And so a lot of what I do is is based on helping people cultivate fulfilling relationships with themselves and with others and just have, I believe that relationships are the foundation of our lives and, you know, it's the quality of our relationships that brings us the most happiness and fulfillment and not the quantity. So I really like to focus on people developing um, healthy relationships for that reason. And I am the author of two books. Uh, The recent book that just came out last week is called The Facebook Narcissist, How to Identify and Protect Yourself and Your Loved Ones from Social Media Narcissism. Sometimes I forget that, but that's the title. And um, previously, I was clinical faculty at um, the George Washington Medical School, where I uh, mentored medical students and helped them with their mental health throughout the process of going through med school. So it's a little bit about me. And I have... um, Elementary-aged kids, uh, they will be 8 and 10 in September. Great. So how did you get into this area of narcissism? Well, first started, if I'm going to be completely candid, which I like to be, uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I was in a relationship with um, an emotionally abusive narcissist, and it was just a defining moment of my life I had never been through. Something like that before, where it really just... it. I think it's a a form of trauma actually just shook my core and my worldview of how, you know, I viewed everything in the world. And it was, it was a situation where I believe if I had stayed, it would have turned into physical abuse. You know, it was very, very emotionally and verbally abusive. And so once I got out of it and, you know, hindsight's 2020 and I could see clearly, and I started um, reading about narcissists and gaslighting and, you know, all of, and, and emotional and, and mental abuse, I became determined, you know, that one, I would never let that happen to me again. And two, I really wanted to help other people navigate these type of relationships with um, these toxic people. And I wanted to make sure, you know, especially for women that um, I was helping them navigate these relationships and ideally, you know, help them leave these relationships. So that actually has been a lot of the foundation, you know, of what I do and what I write about. Um, because I'm just very interested in helping people protect themselves from, you know, the bad things in the world. Yeah. So as a clinician, when I think of a narcissist, I think of the diagnosis, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about this diagnosis of narcissism Mm -hmm. or narcissistic personality disorder versus kind of everyday narcissism or narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, that's a good question. And I love actually uh, Dr. Craig Malkin. He's a Harvard psychologist and he has a book called Rethinking Narcissism. And I like to use his example, which he defines narcissism as a spectrum if we look at it from one to 10. And, you know, on the highest end of the spectrum, let's say like eight, nine, 10, that's where we might have narcissistic personality disorder, which is thought to be rare. You know, um, some people in our field will say it's around 1% of the population, but I've heard people you know, some studies have certain, maybe even a bit higher than that. Um, but generally, it's it's rare to have this diagnosable uh, dis- personality disorder, which is defined, Craig Malkin defines it by three defining characteristics, which is, uh, he calls triple E, which stands for lack of empathy, entitlement, and exploitation. And that's a pervasive um, pattern. It's like across, you know, every aspect of their life. So it's not like you know, sometimes maybe unwillingly we might exploit someone or as I say in my book, 
there's times where we will all have low empathy. You know, it's just we're human, right? And so if we're Mm -hmm. fatigued or tired or, you know, we're just, we lose it in a moment, you know, and we're in Imago, we say the reptilian brain, it's our fight or flight, you know, response when we're triggered. Um, So yeah, so it's not like, oh, you know, I had a low empathy moment that day. It doesn't mean you're a narcissist. Um, So it's just really that pervasive pattern of behavior where, um, you know, it's just, it's constant cruelty. And it's also very much um, self-centered and attention seeking. And that doesn't necessarily have to be grandiose. So there's been a lot of interesting developments in the narcissism field, especially in the past 10 years, looking at different subtypes of narcissism. One, which I find really interesting, which is communal narcissism, which is where somebody gets what their, their narcissistic supply or their attention from doing good deeds. And if we're looking at the social media angle, then posting about those good deeds, but still having those characteristics of lack of empathy, entitlement, exploitation. So for example, um, after my first book, I got a lot of letters from women all over the world talking about you know, narcissists that ha- they had been involved with. And one woman said that hers, the one she was married to was a missionary and he was doing all this great work with the church, but behind the scenes, he was actually, um, you know, a child abuser and all of these things. And so it's, you know, it's sort of this persona people portray to the outside world, which is, brings them attention, but especially behind closed doors, it's just a very, a very lacking in empathy. And again, that exploitation over other people. Uh, And then again, it's sort of on the spectrum. Dr. Malkin would say the middle of the spectrum is kind of a nice place to be because of the lower end of the spectrum, you have a very low self-esteem and and people pleasing and, you know, almost no sense of self. So it's not that it's, you want to have a sense of self. You want to have belief in yourself. Um, You just don't want it to uh, go to so extreme where it becomes all about you and you'll do anything and step on anyone to get what you want. Yeah. When we think about kids from a developmental perspective, I think about a lot of those things still being kind of developmentally normal, right? Very egocentric, very self-centered, unable to take the perspective of others. Um, that, I mean, I, I think that as, as we grow, we develop these expectations that our kids are going to have the ability to be more empathetic, but do you see narcissistic tendencies or the prognosis early on, or is it more easily identified in adulthood? I think it's best to try to identify it in adulthood, you know, and I'll, I'll tell a lot of my friends because they know I specialize in narcissism and they, some of them have preteens and teens and they're worried their kids are narcissists. And I'm like, no, that's totally normal teen behavior. (laughs) You know, they're like, but they're so selfish and they're so mean and all they care about is themselves. And I'm like, no, that's totally normal for teens. Right. And also Um, for toddlers and and yes, all children to some extent. Yes. I will say that you can identify, and again, this is a rare subset, but, you know, antisocial traits, and we know that, you know, antisocial personality disorder or conduct disorder before 18 is in this cluster B with narcissistic personality disorder um, in the DSM, which is our, call it like our psychology manual. Um, and so that those things are all characterized by a lack of empathy. But, you know, sometimes I think when, you know, I've been talking a lot about the profile of these mass shooters who are often under the age of 21, you know, we're looking at a lot of strong antisocial traits, uh, 
what we've seen is, you know, they're killing and abusing animals, threatening rape and kidnapping of women, you know, a lot of misogyny, uh, a lot of threats, violence, aggression, really low empathy. So I think in that case, like that, those are some red flags where um, someone may really have an antisocial or narcissistic personality disorder or, you know, a conduct disorder. But again, that would be these really extreme cases. So, uh, you know, I, I like to define, if you know, your kid's right. not hurting animals, you know, and they're just sort of like, well, F you, mom, I'm going to the mall, you know, like that's normal. <laughs> right. That's a good differentiating factor yeah. there. It's so after reading your book, I'll be honest, I felt like for a minute that maybe we're all narcissists. Um, but I, th- I think it's less about the label of are we or are we not narcissists and more of recognizing narcissistic tendencies and how they're popping up. Yes, exactly. And I think in the beginning of the book, sort of in the introduction, I say, you know, if you're asking yourself that question, it means you're not a narcissist, right? Because like people who are really narcissists don't think that they are and they don't have that self-reflection and insight because I get that worry a lot too. You know, with my first book, some of my friends read it and they quietly confided in me. I'm I'm worried I might be a communal narcissist. I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) First, you're asking yourself that question. Uh, But yeah, the the book was more about, um, well, one, you know, figuring out like who these extreme narcissists are, who are really causing harm. You know, like I said, Mm -hmm. we have on the real extreme spectrum, there's people who really want to do harm and use social media to do that from, you know, cyber stalking, cyber bullying, um, things like that. But then the other part of it was just like, well, self-awareness or self-reflection about our own behavior and like, is there own, and again, like admittedly, I have had some of those behaviors and, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a full-blown narcissist, but yeah, have I posted things in the past? Um, You know, I've since deactivated personal Facebook, but one of the things that I thought about when writing this book was, you know, I'd post something and then after I'd be like, wait, why did I do that? You know, and there was something about seeking that validation or enjoying that attention. And so I'm not above any of it either, but I just really wanted to look at how, you know, regular people could use social media in a more mindful way. That's more about connection, which I think it was allegedly designed for, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the harm that can come from it and the the relational ruptures that can come from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I'm thinking about my own use and actually I had Ethan Cross, um, the author of chatter on the podcast recently, and he brought to my attention this idea that on Facebook, the, the question that you see when you log on is there's a a, a prompt that says what's on your mind today, Danae, or insert name there. And that is really this invitation to reveal the innermost thoughts in your brain And we have to pause and ask ourselves, is that appropriate? Or what is the cost benefit analysis of revealing those innermost thoughts? And do you find that when people are invited to share those, that they're either, they have a tendency to be looking for empathy or really wanting to fulfill those narcissistic tendencies? Yeah. And, you know, there's actually science and research behind this that says, you know, narcissists use Facebook or social media as a playground for them to receive just, you know, gratification from constant attention. Whereas, again, people who are not narcissistic use it for to seek connection and, Mm. and friendship and, you know, things like that. 
And so there's different motives, you know, for what people would use it for. But I also like to look at it from a trauma informed perspective and, you know, that people with developmental trauma can often have attention seeking behavior. So I really wanted to make a distinction that just because someone might be seeking attention on social media, I think that we have to have some empathy for that too, you know, even with like the vague booking, which I talk about in the book, which is when someone posts, you know, a vague status that seems like it's looking for people to, you know, give them some kind of attention is that, you know, sometimes it really is a cry for help or sometimes it's loneliness and people really looking to connect and not really knowing how to do that. And so, you know, I also try to look at it as like, can we have more empathy for people um, instead of, instead of being judgmental about that? Yeah. The vague booking that you talked about is something I've never heard that label before, but when I, when I read that, I started thinking about that and that's comments people will make. Like they'll make a post that says today was a really hard day. Pray for me or something like that. Right. Hinting at something bigger. Um, and I will be totally honest that I am captivated by posts like that. Like when I see that, I start thinking like, well, what could it be? Could it be this? Could it be that? That I'll read the comments, like to see if there's more details. Like that kind of post really kind of piques my interest from some weird perspective. I don't know why, (laughs) but do you find that? Yeah. And I think it's like, it's human nature and curiosity and, you know, just thinking about celebrity lives and like how people were so invested recently in like the Depp Heard trial, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just like we all... And this is, again, why, you know, with true crime, which is another field I sort of dabble in, women especially, we really want to know, you know, it's like we want to understand. It's like a mystery, you know, someone yeah. drops you a clue and you all of a sudden we want to know more. I want to know more. Why did this happen? What's going on? Um, and I think sometimes there's that concern, too, you know, if somebody yeah. says, oh, I had a really horrible day, the concern in us wants to reach out and be like, is everything okay? Yeah. So I think there's just a, but yeah, it pulls on this sort of curiosity that we have of wanting to know more when we don't have enough information and then getting sucked into the the black hole of that, right? Yeah. Um, in your book, you mentioned that how the size of our networks have expanded and on social media that you probably have this random person that you met in Jamaica as one of your friends. Yeah. And I laughed because I actually have like, I went on this, my husband and I, before we got married, we went, we hiked the Inca trail in Peru and there were like 20 people on our trip. And I'm pretty sure I'm still friends with all 20 of them from 2008. <laughs> None of which I think have I talked. Actually, um, I, I did talk to one or I do keep in touch with one. But um, thinking about like though the people that are we would have a generation ago completely lost touch with. Now we're keeping up with this huge, broader network. And what is what is the value in that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually still struggle with that as well, because, you know, in, in my book, I talk about my own journey with Facebook when I decided to leave my personal account there, I had over 700 friends. And I asked myself, like, I don't have 700 (laughs) friends, you know? Um, And it's, and again, this is right after I had my first child in 2012. And I was looking at it like, well, I want to share my son with, I don't want to share him with 700 people because most of these people don't care about his first steps or, you know, I mean, just being honest, the people who really care about my son's first steps are his grandparents, maybe his aunts and uncles and like some very close friends, you know? And so I just started to think about um, this voyeurism that I was uncomfortable with of people, all these people 
that I don't really know, you know, and um, getting this window into my life. Um, and but also by the same token, yeah, you you know, I went the Jamaica thing was I went to a wedding in Jamaica with a friend and, you know, met some great people at the wedding. And it's you don't want to lose touch with them because we had such a good time. Uh, and so you friend them on Facebook. And so I think there's also this nice aspect of like really connecting with people and having a way to not lose touch with them. And, you know, I was I spent three years of my childhood in London and had really, really great friends at that time. And Facebook was what allowed me to find them again, you know, when I was an adult. And so, you know, there's there's that too. I just think, again, it's such an individual choice of trying to figure out what am I comfortable with? What am I comfortable with sharing? And who am I comfortable sharing with? And I personally found when I got off that network with so many people, and it was also me just constantly seeing what was going on in other people's lives and that inevitable comparison factor that we all feel, you know, that somebody else, oh, somebody else has got it together and I don't. And even in my most well-adjusted, secure times, like being bombarded with so many people's lives and information can really make me feel bad about myself. So I found out, you know, for me, it was the most mentally healthy decision to not have such a large network, but I think it's a personal decision. Yeah. You said that social media has led us to believe that the only life worth living is enviable. I was really struck by that statement. Um, Can you talk more about that? Yeah, you know, I interviewed such brilliant, brilliant um, narcissism experts and research researchers on this, and I think we all agree something we find really problematic that's come out of social media is this celebrity influencer culture, where now everything is, you know, about wealth and money. And I think what really struck me was in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, when you had all the celebrities Instagram Instagramming from their pools, you know. Yeah. Well, the world was on fire. People were losing their jobs. I mean, you know, essential workers were dying. You know, there was the story of this bus driver. Someone coughed on him and he got COVID and died, you know. So it was just this huge disconnect. Um, But looking at how young girls and, and tweens and stuff are growing up exposed to this type of content where it's, you know, thin waists and bikinis and jets and, you know, whatever this, I would say the Kardashian lifestyle is. Um, and, and, you know, this influencer culture where people are just, you know, relatively famous or making money for being a brand of themselves and selling things, you know, there's so much consumerism and, um, and I think that becomes problematic. Um, and one of the studies I cite was from Britain where, they asked the parents of kids who were like the ages of seven to 13, what do they want to be when they grow up? And the top two answers were YouTuber and influencer as two separate things. Um, and it was, you know, the majority of responses. And then after that, like in a distant third was veterinarian or something. Mm. And then they asked the motivations and they said fame and money. And that was what really struck me as wow, you know, like, again, this is so the opposite of what I do in my profession, which is like what really matters again, is the quality of our relationships and living a life that's meaningful and often a life that's meaningful is, you know, doing something that's in service to others or having a feeling of purpose. And I really feel that like excessive materialistic, vapid um, social media culture, and especially now we're seeing, you know, what's happening with body dysmorphia around that. It's really, really disturbing to me. Yeah. 
And so it was interesting for me to think about this idea that social media leads us to believe that the only life worth living is enviable because I used to think that we would look to social media to to see if we are normal, right? We want to see what other families are doing. We want to see what they're wearing, what their photographs look like, what achievements their kids have so we can kind of size our up and size ourselves up and figure out where we fit in that. But I do think it's it, there there is this kind of next level to this is it's not just enough to kind of fit in and be normal, but it's wanting to be enviable, wanting to be the envy Mm -hmm. of your friends, of all the people out there, friends, acquaintances, whatever, your people, that you're doing something even better. Your kids are doing something even better. Yeah. And that's, I think that makes people sometimes feel better about themselves, right? And that can stem from a deeper insecurity, you know, is that if people are envious of me, then I must be doing something right. Or I can feel really good about myself because people want to be me. It's sort of this keeping up with the Joneses type thing, you know, that we're seeing. We see this bar that's set and then everybody wants to measure up to that and then also be the one that everybody envies because we think that that's going to bring us, again, some kind of fulfillment, but it's this fleeting shallow fulfillment, just like likes are a form of validation. And again, validation is normal to want. Every human being loves validation and that's okay. That's fine. We're programmed to do that. And validation is good, but the problem is we become kind of addicted to this idea of, wow, I'm really special because I got 200 likes or people really think my life, you know, that makes us feel great in the moment, but then it's just like this very empty thing. It's like, you know, doing a shopping spree in the moment you come back, you have these nice clothes and then you're like, ugh, but that didn't make me feel better. And I think it's like a, it's, it's a distraction, you know, again, from what really, what really matters in life. Yeah. It's like chasing the wrong things, if you will. Right. And so many people create a false narrative, right. Around what life actually looks like versus what life looks like online. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel like those false narratives impact the person that is creating them and also the person that is viewing them? Yeah. I mean, I think the one, one of the stories that struck out to me that stuck out to me was, you know, as a couples therapist, when I was on Facebook and I had 700 plus friends, everybody knew I was a couples therapist. And it was really, really fascinating to me that the people who put the most effusive over the top things were to the point where you're like, I have to hide this person from my newsfeed. Like, I'm happy for you. But it was just so over the top gushiness, right. you know, that it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that's too much. Almost 100% of the time, those people that were so annoying that I would feel like I have to hide you would soon message me privately and say they, you know, wanted a couple's therapist. And in one particular case that I actually have this as a case study in my book or as a story and anecdote in my book, this woman that I, you know, vaguely knew um, had reached out to me and asked me to get coffee. And I thought that, okay, that's kind of strange, but I went out to coffee with her and she was one of the people where she had just got married and it was like, wow, the love of my life. Look how great this relationship is. They're crazy about each other. And then when we met for coffee, she just started confiding in me, you know, that he was abusive and this and that. And it, I remember just telling her, like, just if I was flat out shocked because I was like, wow, the, you know, what you have on Facebook is the opposite of what you're telling me right now. And so I think, you know, again, that in situations like that, 
Facebook gives people that fantasy, that false narrative to create almost what they wish that they had. And I think that's what's happening, you know, is that we're creating almost, it's almost like what we want to be true. Maybe if we can convince ourselves that it's true, it will be true, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I also, but to what it's doing to people who are witnessing it is again, it's creating a lot of unhappiness and insecurity because a lot of people are just constantly, and I hear this from everybody. I mean, I even have a good girlfriend who's very anti-social media, but she's on LinkedIn and she's, you know, top of her game in her profession. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm a person that doesn't generally compare myself to others. I'm happy with myself, but I go on LinkedIn and I feel like crap because it's like LinkedIn is, you know, the, um, like the Facebook of professional accomplishments. Yeah. And then she's not measuring up there and not saying that LinkedIn is a false narrative, but when we're just constantly looking at the highlight reels and how great everything else seems, again, we just can't help but start to question ourselves and our lives. And, you know, I'm not measuring up here, even if we never did before. There's something about seeing these things or imagining that everybody else has it together, which I hear from a lot of clients. And they always reference social media. Well, everybody else seems like their relationships are together. I had a client say that to me just last week why can't I keep a relationship together? And I said to her, just because you're seeing it on Facebook doesn't mean that it's true. And it also doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. And so that's that's what I really worry about is people like, something's wrong with me when they're not even getting reality from what they're consuming. We're going to pause for a two-minute break from today's sponsors. The first sponsor for today is KiwiCo. KiwiCo delivers monthly crates of science and art projects for kids of all ages and kids at heart. They include everything you need to complete each project so you can bring it wherever summer takes you. We are taking a month long trip this summer and we're gonna be staying in the same house that doesn't have toys and probably pretty limited entertainment. And I definitely plan on stuffing a couple KiwiCo boxes into my suitcase to surprise my kids when we have a little downtime there. We recently completed the Fun With Flight box. And if you have a trip coming up where you are going to be flying, this might be particularly interesting to your kids. But they absolutely adored launching rockets, flying kites, and learning while playing, which is exactly what KiwiCo is about. Pack summer full of memorable discoveries with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code SIMPLE at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code SIMPLE. Our second and final sponsor for today is PrepDish. I truly appreciate PrepDish, which is a meal planning service, because PrepDish helped me feel not so alone in the kitchen. For many years, all the years, I've been the caregiver who's home during the meal prep hours during the week. So I'm the one getting the food on the table. And I'm not going to lie, I have felt my fair share of resentment over the years. But PrepDish changed that because it allowed my partner to be able to support me even when he wasn't there. Now we can prep the food together in advance at a time that's convenient for both of us. So when it comes time to getting the food on the table, I don't feel so burnt out and I feel much more supported. If you want to try it out, go to PrepDish.com forward slash families and you'll get two weeks free. That's preptish.com forward slash families. 
You'll find everything you need to know to get started, the meal plan and exactly how to prep it in a way that is fast and easy. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. Back to my chat with Lena. I am. Um, so my six-year-old is super creative. Like one, one of those kids that just comes up with the wildest things. And she, she has, she creates false narratives all the time. And it's very hard to kind of parse apart, you know, this is a creative story and I'm, you know, playing pretend. And I'm actually like really telling people just straight up lies. Um, I recently met back since, since March when the masks came off, events started happening. I've been meeting a lot more parents and I recently had a parent say to me like, Oh, I heard your daughter speaks four languages. (laughs) And I'm just like, no, she certainly does not speak four languages. She can do about two signs in sign language. And she speaks about six words of Spanish. Um, And she takes once a week Chinese in school, which she speaks zero words of, but she does speak English. But it was interesting to to reflect on this, right? Because she, in her mind, she does speak four languages because she has like a word in each of these languages. But the way that other parents hear that, right, is, wow, my kid must not be measuring up because Danae's kid speaks four languages, right? When they don't (laughs) really have any context. And that kind of thing is very hard for me because I, I really do want her to be creative and to, you know, exercise her imagination. But at the end of the day, I do think when you create false narratives like that, that it the the listener is in this compromising position of, I think I'm supposed to believe you, but that sounds not reasonable. Yeah. And again, I think like just as we were talking about like the teenagers having low empathy or seeming self-centered, it's like, I feel like that's also super common for kids her age, you know, to have this really imaginative, colorful life, which is really nice. And she actually is telling the truth in her mind, you know, (laughs) in a way (laughs) it's like she does in her own. Yeah. Speak, you know, if you've mastered one word, it's cute. I like, I like to hear that. And so I think like, it's, it's kind of nice. My son also has a friend and he'll come home and, you know, she, the craziest story, oh, she was in a car accident or somebody broke into her house and robbed them to, she has a YouTube channel with 1 million followers. And like, after I started hearing these stories for a while, I was like, wait, this can't all be true, you know? Right. But he believes all of it, you know? And, yes. he, and, and so that's the thing too, is that um, I think there's a little teaching moment there with our kids. And also again, to have empathy for her, you know, the, mm-hmm. the friend that's like telling these, these stories as I always, you know, she's really big imagination and, I wonder, like, curious why she wants to tell people about that. Like, you know, what is, she obviously yeah. is, you know, and so instead of framing it, because I think as kids get older to where my son is, who's in, about to be in fifth grade in the fall, there's some meanness that, you know, they could, oh, you're yeah. a liar. And so I've tried to mm-hmm. reframe it again from an empathy perspective is like, she's not lying, you know, she's using her imagination. And I wonder, I'm curious as to why, you know, she wants to to tell these things that may not be true. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more, having a 10 year old entering fifth grade, you're kind of entering into this phase of the tween years where social media is going to be on the table more. How are you preparing him for that? What what kind of conversations are you having? Yeah, that's really a great question because actually my, my husband designs software. And so he's been in the tech world, you know, that's since he was young, he just is one of these geniuses, you know, it's just his gift. And so he's always been into gaming and both my kids are really into Roblox. Mm-hmm. And um, 
instead of pushing it away, you know, I, we sort of have this philosophy that one, if they have friends, if they're doing well, relative, you know, well in school and they have activities they're doing outside of school and there's nothing showing up behaviorally, then like, I actually want them to learn how to navigate this type of thing, like gaming or the online world on their own with these smart skills, you know? So while he's not on social media, we have constant talks. And with my um, daughter, who will be eight in September, we have these talks too, is that, you know, about online safety, you never give your name, you report, block anybody who's being, you know, a troll or whatever it is. Uh, you never give personal information. And so it's just these constant conversations over and over again. We have transparency too. You know, they only play, we have an open floor plan and they only play, you know, when I'm in the kitchen and I can hear them. And so it's, mm -hmm. you know, but they will now come and tell me, you know, something, oh, so-and-so came in and said the, the this, you know, whatever the, the S word, they call the S word is stupid. You know, they think that's a bad word and I reported him, you know, so they'll come and they'll, yeah. they'll share that with me. So right now, sort of where they are age appropriately. Um, and then we also talk about um, scammers and people not saying, you know, lying about who they are. You know, you can't, um, if you don't know the person behind the screen, you can't put too much stock into you know, them telling the reality of who they are as well. And so I think that's sort of helping to prepare them, you know, a little bit about false narratives. Um, it's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow uh, sometimes for kids, you know, but I think it's, it, I'm, I'm preparing them. Um, although my husband and I are, we don't want them having social media for a long time. And, you know, we've discussed uh, a lot of our friends with kids in middle school, they have phones, but just for the reason that they now are walking home from school by themselves. And, you know, we want to be able to, if they need to reach us. And so I think, you know, at least in the very beginning, if we ever give our kids a phone, uh, it will just be for calling text purposes. Like we're going to try to keep them off of, you know, like Instagram or TikTok type things for as long as we can. But I also recognize, um, because I have a lot of parents, friends who are parents in that stage, that it's also very hard to deny your kids something when everybody else is on it. So I also want to honor that too, is that I understand how hard it is yeah. as a parent when all your kids' friends are in TikTok. Um, eventually, you you don't want them to be left out. So it's just this constant balance, you know, that Danae, you and I, you know, we didn't have to navigate as kids. And now we have to navigate yeah. it as yeah. parents. And I think it's just such an extra burden for parents, you know. Yeah. I think about it more. I think we navigated similar dynamics in the form of handwritten notes that we would pass back and forth to our friends. And I think that, that, I, I mean, a lot of times I was, you know, as a teenage girl, I remember being mean a lot and my friends being mean and arguing and there being a lot of drama. Um, not that I think that's exclusive to girls, but I think that that's my experience growing up. And I think about now, if I had had social media as a teenager, it would have been would have been really messy. I was already messy. It would have been really messy. And I think especially that something that really struck me and I was concerned and um, chronically concerned about, you talked about in your book, is suicide and cyberbullying. That, I mean, that almost feels like, you know, after reading that part in your book, I feel like, do we need to make that a conversation that starts with puberty conversations, right? This idea of how we really have a role in not only our own mental health, but we do have a role in the mental health of the people around yeah, us. Yeah. I mean, I think 
I am super, super passionate about anti-bullying and anti-cyberbullying. And that comes again from a personal experience that, you know, when I was in junior high, my my experience of being bullied was it was so traumatic to this day. You know, as a woman in my early 40s, I'm like, I can still have nightmares about those experiences in my life. And it is it's so incredibly traumatic for kids um, and kids who are developing their identity and going through awkward phases. But the cruelty behind it is it's just something that's really hard for people to get past and it sticks with them, you know, and those insecurities from the bullying mm-hmm. stick with them for life. And I'm, again, speaking from this from very personal experience, but I just, you know, I just hate, hate seeing um, any child feeling that kind of pain. Like I'm feeling like I'm going to cry even talking about it because it just is so, um, it's so upsetting to me that children are kind of robbed of their innocence and childhood, you know, and then we're seeing children sometimes as young as, you know, eight or nine killing, hanging themselves. And to me, you know, it's just, how do you even get to that point at that age, you know, and um, there's just so much cruelty, but one of the things that I'm hopeful of and cyberbullying, unfortunately, that's what I say. I cannot imagine, like, I felt no purpose to live just being bullied where they could just, you know, prank call my house. There were no cell phones or no social media. There's no way to spread these horrible rumors about people like wildfire on social media or to really see how excluded you are. You weren't invited to this party or people making fun of your pictures or catfishing you, um, you know, which is a real story of a, a girl who committed suicide after being catfished by, a, you know, some uh, group of kids who thought what is that catfished? is when somebody assumes a false identity and, um, you know, tries mm-hmm. to either in adult world, they might extort money. You know, they had this, um, recent documentary on Netflix called The Tinder Swindler, where he had a false identity and he would extort money from these women by pretending he was, you know, somebody else he, he wasn't and tricking them. But this one particular story in the book, this girl, um, a group of kids wanted to, you know, make fun of her and they pretended to be a boy online that was interested in her. And then later they revealed, oh, it was just us, but they were really mean about it and made fun of her. And, you know, there was a uh, shortly thereafter, she did commit suicide. And so, you know, just the teasing, um, but also that betrayal and everybody making fun of you. And so there's just these ways now that um, are just, it's it's so much more cruel and so much more widespread and so much more publicly humiliating. Yeah. I think it's always been, kids have always been cruel, but now the intensity is different. Yes. With the, the frequency and the intensity is just another level. Yes, exactly. But I am hopeful because there are there is studies and, and research saying that, you know, when you start putting these real anti-bullying programs and kindness programs in schools, that you're seeing less of it. And so mm-hmm. I really think that we need, like you said, to circle back to your point, because I kind of dragged on, but that if we're putting a big emphasis on that, like my... my son in fourth grade is starting, you know, some sex ed, you know, pre-puberty stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to take that uh, very, very seriously. And I think we just, we just need so much more SEL, social emotional learning infused in schools from a young age and just really driving home the point of anti-bullying and just empathy, you know, just really uh, teaching that and, and fostering that. I think we don't do enough of that. Right. 
And when you think about anti-bullying programs, you know, I don't know enough about the research to know what's effective and what's not effective, but I mean, my gut tells me what's not effective is using punishment to prevent bullying. You know, it's teaching the skills, the social and emotional skills to prevent it. Um, but what, what do effective anti-bullying programs look like? I think actually you're, it's interesting because I was just reading about this. I've been doing a lot of studying on violence prevention in terms of mass shooters and the profile of these mass shooters who are, you know, under 21. And a lot of the, the researchers on violence prevention, especially against this type of mass shootings, is that punitive measures are not the answer. And in fact, that makes them even angrier and more humiliated. And so there is, um, of course, sometimes that's the only choice, you know, as a, as a punitive measure. But a lot of the times what they're really looking at um, in terms of violence prevention and anti-bullying is social programs and incorporating um, people into clubs or sports, you know, something there's a, where there's a community and um, giving pe- giving kids space to have community and to feel they belong somewhere, you know, is really, really important. Um, I like it. My kids, um, the middle school, my kids will feed into, they have groups and it's, they're split up in the gender. So it's either girl or boy. Um, but it's a space for them in the morning, like homeroom to talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because again, some of the girls, you know, at that age, they're not going to be comfortable sharing things that are going on with boys, but what if it's around a period or something like that? Yeah. But I've heard that that's been really effective in the middle school for, you know, just bonding is having this group space to share first thing in the morning with your peers who are, you know, m- you, you can relate to them more, you know, as, as a girl in those puberty years, you know, and boys too. And so I think it's just really looking at inclusivity and and giving people space and community, you know, and to, to see that we're, we all want the same things out of life. You know, we all want to have safety, security, happiness, you know, so. Yeah. And I mean, I do see so many benefits of social media, even for kids. I remember being, I don't know, maybe third or fourth grade. And I had pen pals. I had a pen pal in Connecticut. I grew up in Ohio. I had a pen pal in Connecticut and it felt like a world away, like hearing about her life and her culture. And it was, she was of a different culture than I was. And I grew up in a very white, small rural town in Ohio. Um, and that was, it was so enlightening to me and was such a wonderful experience to me. And I think about now how kids have the opportunity to be exposed to real kids all over the world who live very different lives. And I think that's wonderful. And that's a really some amazing potential of online life for kids. Yeah. And there's, it's not all bad for sure. And there's definitely some really good aspects about it. Like you mentioned, and the ability to see and experience different cultures and see the world out there, other kids, you know, but also there's, you know, some benefits, some teen girls, you know, depending on what age they use it. There was a recent study where it was looked at the different ages of tweens and tw- teens. And I said, at some ages, it's more appropriate than others. Uh, but it can also, you know, TikTok has this movement around like mental health advocacy where it's normal, it's destigmatizing mental health. Um, so I think there's a lot of great content out there too that's, you know, normalizing and accepting and destigmatizing. And so it's definitely, uh, not all bad and it, it can be really connecting too. So again, it's sort of, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's just sort of how do we use it 
in a way that's again, connecting and helpful instead of harmful. Yeah. And in one of the tips that you had suggested in your book for kids was to teach kids to step away from the bad stuff that they can choose to not respond. And that is, it's really groundbreaking in a way, because even as an adult, I feel that compulsion to when I see something on social media that upsets me, I feel that impulse to respond with my own feelings, but I have the brakes to, to, I can pump the brakes and I can push pause and not respond, but it's hard. Sometimes it's hard, especially if it's something I feel very passionately about. Um, but our kids, they don't have that impulse control that we do. So how, you know, teaching them that they can choose to not respond feels very powerful. Yeah. And it's empowering for them, you know, and I think sometimes anxiety, right. Is total is feeling out of control. And, um, I think when we are like, oh, we have a choice, right. We cannot mm-hmm. respond. That's empowering. That gives us a sense of control. So I think, yeah, letting kids know these are choices we make. Um, and, you know, being able to walk away or to block, I think that's, again, like my kids playing Roblox, you know, there's trolls that will come into the games and start trouble and they will just block them. And again, I think that's Mm -hmm. a great lesson on boundaries, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, you do not have to tolerate or accept behavior that's uncomfortable to you. You can put up a boundary. So I think there's a lot of good lessons there. Just, you know, again, empowering kids to make good choices. And yeah, to learn some of these things that, you know, my, my son now, he has a tendency to get um, angry, especially around things that he feels are unfair, like around injustice, which I totally get, you know, and um, we're really working on when he gets angry, you know, the other night he took his anger out on me and he snapped at me. I asked him a question. He said, be quiet. And, you know, my husband and I were like, Oh, Again, this is a glimpse into the pre almost tween yeah. years, you know, how could you talk to your mother like that? And you know, later on, I went into his room because, again, I'm not really into this punitive this thing, you know, because, again, I'm just coming from a place of curiosity and I'm also trying to help him regulate that and, like, you know, learn to control those impulses a little more. And he even was being reflective about it in his room. He said, you know, I'm really trying harder to calm myself down and to not say things when I'm angry, you know? And so it's just a constant work in progress, but I think the online space is, you know, definitely a good way to practice that too. Yeah. I recently read some research around the fact that kids, kids and adults actually grow our, we, we all grow our empathy, empathy through reading fiction, which I, it makes total sense. I never really thought about it like that, but I read a ton of fiction as a kid, crap fiction, like Sweet Valley, Twins, mm. Sweet Valley High, the Babysitter's Club. Maybe it wasn't crap. I shouldn't call it crap. Um, but looking back now, I mean, it wasn't necessarily high quality writing, but I saw those inner experiences of other kids, usually kids that were a little bit older than me. And that feels like a really good window into talking about some of these things. Like, can we find some some literature, some writing and stories of kids who are a little bit older than our kids who are going through and navigating social media and cyberbullying? Yeah. I mean, that's um, you're my spirit animal, first of all, because all I did as a young girl was read Sweet Valley High. Right. Babysitter's Club, Fabulous yeah. Five, Nancy Drew Files. I mean, it was yes, just all of it. I loved it because it was. <laughs> fantasy escape, you know, but yeah, you were reading about Nancy Drew had her boyfriend, Ned Nickerson, you know, and she had like, (laughs) he was going off to college, you know, you know, but it was a way for me to sort of 
navigate my own yeah. life, you know, you and see have, it as a win. Oh, it's a window into the future. And yeah. And the problem future. solving too. Right? And the relational mm-hmm. stuff, like the twins, Liz and Jess, you know, from Sweet right. Valley High, they were kind of the polar opposite twins and they had conflict a lot, you know, but, you know, so I thought there's definitely a lot um, to learn about that. I think that's a good point. I think we need more fictional literature about, and I'm sure there is a, a, some out mm-hmm. there already about cyberbullying. Um, and things like that. You know, there's definitely some, uh, there's a TV show on YouTube where their, their themes are um, things like that, like being bullied and, and what do you do with that and sort of the message in that. But I definitely yeah. think my kids are enthralled by that stuff, you know? Mm, yeah. And just, I mean, yes, would it be wonderful, wonderful if we could read this together and then have like really lively family discussions about it? Yes. Um, but I also think just reading it and hearing that, how, how these experiences impact a character and their role and their responses, all of that, I think just consuming that sort of content has to have some value in really understanding and having empathy for others. But of course, yeah. if we can, you know, follow that up with some conversation, that would be great. But kids aren't always willing to engage in that conversation either. Yeah. And you might like this anecdote, Danae, because you're a podcaster. I also interviewed a woman named Caitlin Phillips, who wrote a book called The Future of Feeling, which is about um, tech and empathy. And in her study, she pointed me to a study about auditory empathy, where they found that just listening to somebody increases more empathy than actually like looking at them and seeing them. So there was something about this auditory component that increases empathy. So she was saying to me, you know, podcasts are really good for increasing empathy. Or if you're with children, audiobooks, like I don't think a lot of people often mm-hmm. think about audiobooks, but this ability to listen and to not respond, again, circling back to like you don't have to respond, but you're just yeah. absorbing. And what we do in Imago Relationship Therapy is all our dialogues are structured around mirroring, which is listening and repeating back what you heard, because it's mm-hmm. so important with empathy to truly listen and absorb what you're hearing. And so I really like that anecdote just about podcasts and audiobooks. Yeah, I love I I definitely took note of that when you mentioned that in your book. And I and I was thinking on that too, because you know, so often I think with the podcast, I kind of think I'm like staring at a wall when I'm recording. I mean, of course, when I'm talking to a guest, it's one thing, but it's just, it's not necessarily community building, right? It's kind of me talking at people or me talking to one person. Um, and that part, I don't love that part about podcasting because I, w- I like having real conversations with lots of real people. But um, hearing that really was nice because I was like, you know, maybe there is still value in this, right? This idea that you hear things. And I always say on the podcast, you know, some of these things may resonate with you. Some may not take what works for you, leave what doesn't. Because I really want people to be actively listening and choosing the parts that work for them and leaving the parts that don't because that is is sort of hard to do in the world that we're living in, right? Because we have this tendency just to want to turn it off if we don't agree with it and never engage again. Exactly. And that was actually, actually my goal with this book is like, I don't want to tell people what to do with social media. It's not, hey, deactivate your social media. Mm -hmm. It's just like, here's some information, you know, maybe absorb it. Here's some food for thought questions at the end of each chapter and then take what works for you and throw out the rest. You know, I think that's really important that again, people are their own individual agents. They have agency over themselves and not everything, you know, is going to work for them. And I think that's empowering for people to just hear information and have it presented and then make the choices that are best for them. Yeah. 
I agree. Well, thank you so much for this chat today, Lena. Where can we find you, your books online? Yes. Um, I have a website, lenadurhali.com. And that's um, just my first name, last name, D-E-R-H-A-L-L-Y. And the books are sold everywhere you get your books. So even local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. And that's, that's really it. I am on right. social media, but not that much. So, Okay. Sounds good. I will put all those links in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks for chatting. Thank you so much for having me and for this conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to be a part of the Simple Families community, it is now free and also free of social media. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash community. If you want to get in touch with Lena or get links to her books and the things that we talked about today, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 316. When you have a chance, please leave a rating or review for this show. Thanks for your support and have a good one.